Hello, this is Jessica Heron, founder and CEO of the Stella and Dot Family Brands, and this is my brand new podcast, Self Made. Hey, friends, I am so excited for this episode of Self Made because we have a guest who I have had the pleasure of working with, Kaylee Klemp, and she is an expert at professional development and personal coaching to help people realize their potential and become effective because they are self-aware and doing self-development. And one of the things I'm so passionate about is personal growth because it's amazing how much better the world gets and everybody else gets when you're working on yourself. Suddenly, everyone is less annoying. (laughs) So that continual work on yourself, that investment of yourself, it's so easy for people to let it fall by the wayside, especially if they're in a different form of work where they're working, maybe you're working as a solopreneur, maybe you're working by yourself. You know, if you were in an old school corporate job where there was corporate training and requirement, you may be always on a uh, track where they're investing in you doing professional development. But without that, I'm so glad you're taking time to listen to this podcast, to go buy books about personal growth, to go to conferences, because your growth is so critical. You don't grow a business, you grow yourself and you grow other people and that grows a business. So with that, I am so excited to introduce to you, Kaylee Clamp. Kaylee, welcome to the show. Hi, Jessica. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, well, I'm glad you're here, and we're going to talk about a couple key things, the Enneagram, which I'm going to let you explain in more detail, and then this amazing 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And I really think of it as like conscious living because it can benefit you with your family, with your work, with your community. So this is really, tell for the audience that doesn't know, first, give us a, a bit about your background, why you do what you do, and then you know, we'll, we'll dive in to, to those two topics. Absolutely. So a little bit about me, I think, thank you for the kind intro. So I got introduced to this work around personal and professional development. And I love that you blur that line because at least from my perspective, All of this investment in ourselves, it shows up everywhere in our lives. So certainly it can make me more effective in my work, but it can also with my family, with my friends and my community that they go together. I got introduced to it through Young Presidents Organization, which is where I started facilitating. And from there have really grown where I spend most of my time executive coaching with executive teams, still with YPO, and just find these tools and investing in leaders of all forms. I love solopreneurs um, and how they invest in themselves everywhere. So um, that's a little bit about me. That's where we met. We met. So I'm a member of YPO, which is basically like a group coaching for uh, people who have high stress jobs of of being uh, executives. And the really interesting thing, because I knew nothing about it when I joined, what I realized is that when you go in there, you're really talking about your personal life and your feelings. And that is the core and the root of then what lets you be effective at work. So it's absolutely blended. I think that's completely true that one of the things that I love is once people start to recognize that it's in those more vulnerable, more authentic moments where it's about who I really am or how I think or what I believe, you start to see the shifts that show up everywhere. That's right. And so, so you started out your career, you went to Stanford undergrad, you studied international relations, And then you got a master's in sociology, focusing on organizational behavior. Tell people what organizational behavior is and means. 
essentially, if when I think about organizational behavior, it's what's going on inside companies. So there's a path that you can think about in terms of structure, but really what I'm most interested in that shows up in my work is who are the people in these organizations? And so like leaving a little bit of the technicality of my degree, I got really fascinated with how do people work? What are the commitments that can make you effective as a team? How can you be more conscious as a leader? And then also got really into the Enneagram, really understanding yourself through this lens of personality, but using that as a gateway for both personal growth and empathy for other people. That, that's amazing. And I, I love what really organizational behavior is. I mean, it sounds like a, like a fancy term, but the reality is all the strategy the great product, <laughs> all that in the world, if you're in business, like if you're not self-aware and good at empathizing, dealing with people, like it, it's all for naught. It doesn't work out because we're humans living in a real world and you got to develop that emotional intelligence that's more important than any other form of intelligence or market opportunity or anything like that. You are so right. Because one of the things that I love is all the research that's validating that people work for people and that people are drawn to things for people. So it's so much about relationships and self-awareness and who you are and not just like, hey, this is my thing or this is my widget or whatever it might be. So I, Kaylee, I'm going to ask you about the Enneagram, but I'm going to first tell everybody how we first met. You were a facilitator in my YPO, like small group. And I have to say my journey, and hopefully this is just what life is like, right? You go through these phases where your eyes open and you become more open to the world around you, yeah. and which is your life. And when I first met you, I think I was a hot mess. I was like this person who was like, I, I don't have time for this. Like I, I'm so busy doing my responsibilities of having young kids, running this company. Like I, I don't have time to show up for myself. And dedicate time to like diving into who I am. Like who cares? I'm last on the list. Like I'm just so obligated to other people. And I realized I was just, I didn't not have time for it. I was, I had to make time for it because I was so ineffective by not really taking that moment of developing myself as a top priority as a leader. So we met and that was probably a decade ago. Well, so first, I think it's so funny to do the retrospective because what you said that really resonates with me is that this is a choice, that it isn't that all of a sudden you got merit-based time and now you got 27 hours in a day, but that you chose to prioritize yourself. And seeing the value of that cascade just makes you so powerful in your own life, which I think is amazing. So um, the Enneagram, this incredible tool. So anyone who's ever taken a personality test or who knows things like the Myers-Briggs or the PI, um, the Enneagram is different because it's really asking this question, why? What is the motivation behind the behavior? And there's two reasons that's so important to me. One is if I know why I'm doing something or why you're doing something, for myself, it gives me the ability to have more choices. Because if I say, hey, well, the reason why I'm doing this is because I want to be strong or I want to be good. And then I look at the results I'm getting in the world and I go, well, shoot, my intention and the, the results that I'm getting, those are not aligned. It starts to help me have better ways to show up in my own life. 
And the really powerful one that I know you know a lot about is it gives me empathy for other people that sometimes the behavior set isn't awesome. And yet when I know that the other person's intention is to keep me safe or the other person's intention is to create peace, I have so much more generosity of spirit. And, and oftentimes when people are reacting to a situation, we tend to interpret it as it's like, it's, it's happening to us. It's about yeah. me. And really when other people are behaving in a particular pattern or a particular way, it's really more about them than you. And that is right. is understanding your own personality and what that makes you prone to doing, not locked into doing, but just yes. prone to doing and other people, how you can evolve. And so the Enneagram is this quick quiz and you guys, you are going to take this because it is going to be amazing. It's like 12 bucks. You can do it online and it starts just this opening of self-awareness for yourself, for your team you work with, for your kids, for your partner. And so tell a little bit about like, so they go take a quiz and like, what's the kind of questions and what does it come out with? Like, what are they okay. So yeah, so go to the Enneagram Institute.com, take the ready, exactly as you said, it's $12 it takes 20 minutes to do. The questions themselves are really, I think, a little bit frustrating. So it's a forced choice. So you have to choose between these two answers. And if your answers for several of the questions are neither, both, or sometimes, welcome to being human. But answer as best you can. And I say answer as you would have maybe in your early 20s or before you did any personal or professional development. And what you get at the end is this rank ordering of these numbers where it'll say like your top score was an eight or your top score was a six. And they have names for the type. So eight is the challenger and six is the loyalist. But really what you're looking for is, okay, go then read about your top score. And you can take a course. Mine is online at courses.kayleeklemp.com. You can read the report that comes with it. But what you said totally resonates with me, that I read this report and I thought to myself, someone has been reading my mail or someone has been spying on me because- You're like, oh, this is a quick internet quiz. Know my soul. Am I that soul? Like, this is weird. Yes, completely. And- Gosh, at this point in time, I've coached and sort of helped people interpret, probably a thousand people interpret their Enneagram results. And I get that feedback all the time. The people take the test and they go, oh my gosh, this is scary accurate. Yeah, we think we're these complex beings and like we've got this deep inner working and thoughts. You're like, turns out, no, somebody can figure it out. <laughs> well, well I, I would say like both and. I would say oh my gosh, crazy that I am so accurately typed by this test. And I love the freedom that it gives you that you're so much more than a number that I would never be like, Jessica, all you are is an eight. And now I know everything there is to know about you, that there's still so much nuance in your story and you know how you came to be who you are and your parents and your partnership. And yet understanding those default behavior patterns through this lens gives you such a window to then make choices. And I love that because it isn't that, you know, like you were saying, you're pre-programmed and you only ever do one thing, but that you have these default patterns and having this awareness gives you so much more power to interrupt it. Where you go, like for me, if I ever hear myself say, fine, I'll do it myself. It's like a siren goes off in my head. I'm like, okay, I'm completely in the grip of my personality. I need to take a deep breath, Are get centered, eight? get still and make a different choice. Are you an eight? I'm actually a one. Okay, you're a one. Okay. Perfectionist. Yes, exactly. I know, I know, I know ones. Um, so here's the thing about what you just said that I think is so important. And it's probably why 
you're recommending spend the 12 bucks, take the more in-depth test than the free quick tests that are available online, you can do that. Because the danger of the Enneagram, or frankly, any personality assessment, is this feeling like you've been stamped and therefore you are not capable of gravitating or choosing away from that personality. Like it's not a condemnation, it is an awareness. And so I did this with myself and my kids and my, one of my daughters who's a six jokes, well, the six kind of sucks. Like I can't help it on the six. No, no, you can help it. The, the point of doing this isn't to say, oh, here's my box. Now I live in my box. It's, it's actually to not do that. It's to say, because in the more nuanced quiz gives you what they call wings, which is you're not just one thing. You have a tendency to be here or there, right? So it's explain a little bit more about that. Like, how do you take this thing and not feel like damned to be the yeah and there's cons but when you look at the cons you're like oh <laughs> yeah completely well so i think that you've actually this is such a it's kind of a bummer but i think it's true that the way that you type yourself is by how you are at your worst and that you know you found your accurate type when you read it and you're like oh every other type has to be better than this one that's how and, i feel i think my type sucks and you totally, I think my type, especially when I'm at my worst, I'm like, really? They're just, they're, can I trade? Can I, can I do seven instead? How about, how about a four? That sounds fantastic. That, and I think that the reason that most people feel that way about their home-based type is because we know how it feels to be in that grip. Whereas if I look at some of the other types, it's easy for me to skip over some of the more painful experiences of that type. So how do we use it and not feel kind of boxed in? I think a couple things, two huge mistakes. One is if you're doing it in community, if you're doing it with your friends, if you're doing it with your family, I think it's amazingly powerful because people can then be your allies. You have a shared vocabulary and it's so much friendlier for somebody to say to me some version of like, wow, Kaylee, feels like your one has really got you by the ankles than for someone to say, wow, Kaylee, you're being an exceptionally nitpicky, judgmental bitch, right? Like that, that's not going to go that well. So to have a shared language and to have a shared vocabulary, I think is really friendly. That is so interesting. So there's nine types and will you name them? Absolutely. So type one is the reformer and reformers are all about goodness and being good. Two is the helper, and they are all about love and being helpful in the world. Three is the achiever, and they're most attuned to value. How do they contribute value? What is valuable in the world? Four is the individualist, and they are all about depth and meaning. Five is the investigator, and they are really centered on wisdom. Six is the loyalist most known for their relationship with security. Seven is the enthusiast, all about joy and freedom. Eight is the challenger, really about strength. And then nine is the peacemaker. And as the name would suggest, really centered around and motivated by peace and harmony. Okay, I love that. Now we know that there's sort of, it, I think this is true, people know this, that oftentimes their greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. For sure. Amazing which I'm an eight, I'm a challenger. And what's amazing about a challenger is they're really strong and they really drive forward and they're, you know, they don't get deterred very easily and they're a great source of strength and protection and all these great things. But the 
flip side of that is if you're interacting with a non-challenger, you're really not aware of how you can be kind of overbearing or so intense because other people are just not like that level of intensity for an eight is like normal and fine. and feels great. Yeah. Harsh. So you've really got to have awareness around that. So tell me, go through them again. And this is maybe people where they start to recognize a little bit of themselves. What is that thing you have to be aware of, which each of them, like starting from that Oh yeah. I love, I love that question. And I love the way that you talked about it. Let's start at the eight. Let's start with you. And I think you said it so well that if that essence quality is strength, when it feels like I have to be the strong one, then that quality of intensity or overbearing or control starts to show up. So for eights, I say all the time, calibrate, calibrate your energy. If we just go around the circle for nines, that quality of peace, where they need to be really aware is that nines will say yes when what they really mean is no. And so there can be kind of a going along to get along. So nines need to calibrate the other way, really owning their voice and making sure to advocate for what they want. Ones that that attempt at goodness gets confused and there's where the name, the perfectionist can show up, that it starts to feel like the only thing good enough is perfection. And so ones really have to be aware for themselves of that 80-20 rule where they're getting perfectionistic and with others where it starts to feel sharp or judgmental or critical. For the two, in as a helper, Twos can start to give themselves away, where they start to put themselves last on the list. I know that you mentioned that earlier when we were speaking. There's a line in the Enneagram, if you're looking at a diagram between eight and two, where both from that place of strength or that place of love or caring can start to put yourself last on the list. I'm so, an eight with a two wing, I think. <laughs> going, going across that line for sure on the service axis. But for for twos in particular, it's that sense of making sure to value your own needs as much as you're valuing the needs of others. For threes, um, in that pursuit of value, threes start to become, I tease them, human doings instead of human beings. And they can get so attached to making sure that they are achieving whatever metric or achieving whatever goal is set out for them that they forget what they really care about and they can start to put all their relationships on the back burner. For fours in this pursuit of depth or significance, what they really have to watch out for is sometimes everything can start to feel significant and then the people around them start to feel like they need to walk on eggshells. Like everything has an emotional ripple effect. And so to help themselves calibrate what's just practical versus what is actually deeply significant. Mm -hmm. For the five with this pursuit of wisdom, fives have to watch out that they can get caught in their head, that it can start to feel with fives almost like they are a brain that happens to be transported around by a body. And so for them to remember to come back into themselves, their relationships, the world, and not get lost in theory and ideas or models, but really to engage and make real the incredible thoughts that they have. Um, For sixes, it's the loyalist that um, what they're after is security. And so what sixes need to watch out for is that Sometimes they're trying so hard to make everything safe that they can start to either second guess themselves and feel like, gosh, there is no one and there is nothing that I can fully trust. 
or they start to like try to manage every risk in such a way that either life isn't that much fun or they've constrained so many things that it actually creates more risks than it solves for. Uh, and then the last one for the seven, the enthusiast in this pursuit of joy and freedom, what sevens need to watch out for is living a half step in front of themselves. And what I mean by that is sevens can start to anticipate what's coming next that's going to be so awesome that they miss the present moment. That is, that is amazing. And so understanding yourself first is incredible because you recognize both the strengths and weaknesses that you read about. Yes. And I also really like that I'm not one type, right? I'm an eight yes. with a little bit of a two and a little bit of a five and yes. at times and tendencies where I slide one way or the other, but I'm still have free will and self-control and I totally. go out of that box into awareness. And then when you start to think about what, and I want everybody to have this gift of like this awareness that comes from doing some kind of professional development. When I have done this and I've had my partners do it, my partners in business and my partner in life. And what is amazing about that level of awareness, and I know that you and your husband are actually writing a book about Enneagrams and relationships. Is that right? We're writing, we're writing a book about marriage and Enneagram certainly informs it. Enneagram is not the main topic of it. We're thinking about it more in the context of roles and sort of the current context of, hey, what does it look like to be married as a two-career couple? How do you do radical generosity? How do you sort of structure your life? Um, but certainly he and I are in regular conversation about how my one and his nine hook each other and support each other. Oh, that's amazing. So, so when I've, I've used that professional development tool like in my life, and that book sounds amazing. Everybody will be excited when that comes out. We'll yeah. tell you what it does. Um, like my husband is a six, I'm an eight. So he will be a little bit of a pullback. I'll be a little bit of a pull forward. And we're aware of those tendencies in each other so that we can like understand it and meet in the middle instead of just being frustrated with each other. Completely. So what I love about what you just said, so there's several things. One is the more self-awareness you have and the more you're able to see the gifts and the liabilities of your type, the more freedom you have. And so exactly as you're saying, it's not like, oh, so sorry, you're an eight and there's nothing else there, but that you can choose and you can expand and you can accentuate your two or you can use the wisdom of your five. And when you know your type and the type of your partner, there's so much empathy that becomes possible where you say, I am grateful for your brakes and I'm grateful for my gas because I don't know about you, but I don't want to drive a car that lacks either. Right. And, and that is, you know, and then with my work partners that I've worked you know, very closely with three, a one, a four, and us knowing like where we come from, it makes this conversation where you can acknowledge their needs. I mean, I understand it and actually appreciate them and create room for them. So I let the one be a one and the four be a four. <laughs> and, and, that, they, and they then in return understand where I root from because, you know, oftentimes, you know, and this is actually a question I wanted to know, are you, are you born that way or are you shaped that way? Because when I've met eights and other eights, it's interesting that we often have the same early childhood experiences that put you in this bucket, but you know, how is nature versus nurture involved in? I think it's such an interesting and such a great question. So 
I subscribe to the belief that you are born your type and that gets validated for me where, so you have two kids and were they different from the moment that they were born? Totally. And my sister are not the same and you could argue they have the same experience. So yes. Exactly. Yep. So that's part of it. And then I think one of the things that happens is my personality shapes the lens through which I see my life situation. So you're right. It's really common that eights will tell a story of, Hey, the only thing that made sense in my family of origin was to get out of there and be autonomous and be on my own and claim my own path. Well, that's true kind of regardless of the background situation because that's the orientation of the eight in the world. Well, that is interesting because we're going to start talking about now these 15 commitments. Of yeah. And I, then like word leadership, I want to like kind of say, hold up, wait a minute, because that makes you feel like, okay, if I'm a C-level executive, I can deploy this in my life rather than like living with intention and consciousness because you, if you're listening and you're thinking, well, how do I apply this to my small company or to my, to my family or to my community or to this group I'm leading? It is super relevant. So when I thought about, you know, one, kind of I want to blame other people for who yeah. I am. Like, like nature versus nurture is like, man, it'd be easier if I could just be like, damn it, it was my parents that made me this way. It's their fault or the environment I grew up in. But one of these things around this leadership thing was like, okay, I'm aware of who I am. Great. But now what do I do about that? How do I make some commitments to myself and others about what I go do in life to move from that default place to a better place and a part of evolution where I'm more in the strengths Yeah. Personality versus the weaknesses. And the first one, which I'm going to get you, there's 15 of them. There's a book called 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. You, you should all get that and read it. But one of them is we're going to go through like, you know, a hit list, of like the top five. Yep. Taking radical responsibility. Yeah. I mean, I love that what you just said, that essentially the big shift in claiming radical responsibility and taking it is that you aren't in a place of victimhood anymore, that you don't blame and you don't rescue. And there's nothing bad or inherently wrong. Like we're not going to do character judgments there, but so much less is possible if you're stuck in that place of blaming, complaining, and rescuing. So I love taking radical responsibility because it gives you choices. And once you have choice, then you get to experience some of the other powerful commitments of living, for instance, and learning through curiosity that if I can't do anything about it and I'm stuck in that place of victimhood, well, then I can't learn through curiosity. But once you claim that, you go, oh my gosh, life is my teacher. And every situation that I'm in, whether I think it's awesome or whether I think it's challenging, is here for my growth. And with that mindset, so much is possible. And Kaylee, I will confess because I vividly remember when we were in a coaching group together and like, I remember where you were sitting, where I was sitting and it was this awakening for me. So I just want to say thank you, but it didn't happen instantly. It happened as a, you said this, it was profound. I had to absorb it. I resisted it, but it sunk in and ultimately it was a part of evolution and growth. But when we were talking about that your situation is a gift and that you can learn from it, if you are willing to take responsibility and have curiosity. I was so resistant to that idea. I was like, no, there's no spinning this. Like there's no reason that having the circumstance in life is good. There's no goodness. Like if we could pick, we'd all pick something else, but that's really not 
I wasn't really fully absorbing. It really was that if you're in this situation, no matter what your situation is, you can still say, well, how am I, what, where do I get strength from this? Yes. Let me be curious about that. And then how do I see, did I co-create it? Did I not co-create it? How do I move out of this? So that is sort of one of these things I want to point out around like what that really means is radical responsibility is really challenging to take because I've heard people say this, like when they're in a marriage and someone has a, you know, has an affair and then the counselor who's asking them to take radical responsibility says, well, how did you both create this? And you listen to that and you're like, what? Yeah. Go create that. That person did it. But that question, like, tell me how do people like, give me the challenging things you've seen where people like, it sounds good, but in life, they're super resistant to this idea around actually having responsibility and curiosity. Well, I think that you named a really great one. I think in our relationships, sometimes it's really challenging to not sit back and go, well, gosh, if that other person would just change, then this would be better. Or I didn't do anything here. This is their fault. And to start to really look at even I created this by choosing to stay or I've created this by, you know, my behaviors once upon a time or my mindset or my beliefs. I think that's, that's really challenging. I think that there are also sometimes situations in life where you didn't create it. Um, so for instance, you know, we had a flood in our house and I wouldn't say like I was in charge of the weather and I created that. And sometimes right in the moment, isn't the, isn't the space for that question. Or like you were saying, you know, I asked you, how is this an ally for your growth? Or how are you creating this in your life? And how is it here to serve you? And you're like, it's not. In that moment, I think that that's fine, right? As I'm carrying carpet outside of my flooding basement, I wasn't like, yay, life. I'm so grateful for this. But afterwards, with reflection is where I think it's really helpful to see that these are allies in terms of our growth, in terms of the growth of our self-awareness and how we see ourselves in the world, not necessarily like, hey, I'd like to have that experience again because it was so pleasurable. Right. And curiosity is one I want you to talk more about because this has been another transformative thing for me, like taking radical responsibility, seeing like, what did I do to co-create this or what, you know, how can I evolve myself? Because you can change yourself, but you can't change other people or disasters like floods. For sure. Can, but if you're curious, curious, curiosity replaces frustration and anger in a situation where you're like, huh, isn't that interesting? Like if you can hold it more lightly, like tell me more how people use curiosity as a commitment. So I think with curiosity as a commitment, some of it is about the intellectual openness of curiosity. Like, huh, can I see another side of this, which sort of points a little bit to, can I see the opposite of my perspective? And I think anytime it, it hooks an emotion, so many times now in political conversations, people will get hooked. And to really embrace curiosity is to say, can I start to see the other side? So there's an intellectual openness, but I think there's also an emotional openness. Am I willing to be open in relationship with you? Am I willing to be curious to who you are and what I experience when I'm with you rather than sort of closing my heart, closing my mind and really being in a place of being right. And I think that's in some ways you can know something by its opposite that I know that I've lost curiosity when I am sure that I am right about who this person is, about how the situation should go, about, you know, how something should finish. And so curiosity is kind of taking that step back 
and breathing. I think for myself, I really know that I've also lost curiosity when I start to kind of constrict my breath and constrict my body. And sometimes just that deep breath or laughter will help me come back to that place where I go, what can I learn from this? You know, I, I love that. And exploring the opposite is actually, you know, one of the 15 commitments and yeah. how you can use this in your life. I remember taking this course in college that was like touchy feely. It's basically yes. where you would exaggerate the roles of people, meaning, and I think in this, they were putting people who came from very different backgrounds and trying to get them to empathize and understand the other better. And they would basically take on the other person's personality and they would sit back to back and they would say these really outrageous, you know, inflammatory things. Yeah. The person didn't even, a, 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 you know, agree with really, but they were just doing it for drama and effect and to help people understand the situation. So one, I remember them doing this with like someone who was really privileged and someone who was, you know, an immigrant and, and they had very different social backgrounds and they were, you know, arguing why the other person was harsh and judgmental and not in the right place. And in the end, you could just see that it's not about people even being right or wrong. It's that when you put yourself in the place of looking at a situation or a person or your judgment and getting really arguing the opposite. So if you think someone is being like someone is being a racist or someone is being sexist or someone is being, you know, something horrible. First of all, it doesn't mean to, to be empathetic to where they're coming from. It doesn't mean you're letting go of your values or yeah. the idea that they shouldn't actually be this way or that way, but it does, empathy makes you more effective in relating to them in order to create positive change so that you're not just coming from this place of aggressive attack versus yeah. aware, enlightened you know, individual. Oh, really? you know, to me, yeah. the opposite is about like coming to the middle and having reason versus these fero this ferocious things in the world that just make people so, so ineffective. Totally. Totally. And, and I think that being able to see the opposite or argue the opposite, I agree with you. It does not mean that I lose my conviction. Right. What it means is that I'm not entrenched in such a way that I actually get more polarized rather than learning. So I love the study that talks about if you get, you know, Democrats together and Republicans together and you have them talk about an argument, the Republicans who've only talked to Republicans get more polarized and the Democrats who've only talked to Democrats get more polarized. Whereas if you can engage and really get up close and listen and understand and then argue the opposite, which doesn't mean you're going to change political parties or change beliefs or lose your convictions, but just being able to argue the opposite loosens your grip on your perspective so that to your point, it loses the edge of righteousness. It loses the, um, that entrenched piece of it. It's not as inflammatory. And then we actually get dialogue and then we get choice rather than just rote this is the way that it is. And when you, and I think about that now in other situations, we're talking about like social policy issues yeah. all witnessed today. And it's like incredibly annoying. And I think why many people are disengaging from, you know, the news and yep. so sensational and extreme, but even in a work situation. So if something goes wrong and yeah, it's, it's a mistake, it's wrong. There's a bad outcome, like undeniably from a situation, but sometimes people will take that and they, they blow it up, right? It's, it's, yeah. Language is inflammatory, like, you know, this is blowing up, or this is a crazy, or I've never seen this before. Da, da. And if in that moment you can take your, if you ever feel super triggered, and then you, you say, okay, if I'm triggered before I interact with other people, before I like, hey, for sure, oh, oh, oh. see your own stuff, yes. 
let me go explore the opposite. And even if I don't believe it, I think it's a load of crap. I'm just going to go write down like three statements of exploring the opposite. It makes you then more effective when you engage. So these are just the things where when you think about these conscious leadership, right, it could be something you're doing when you're going to go, you know, talk to your child about a sensitive issue or, you know, an organization that you work with. So there's ways that you can apply and do that when you go explore this book, there's the scenarios and I, I really love it. Okay. So okay. one of the other conscious commitments uh, I want you to talk about, which is eliminating gossip. Mm. I love that one. Tell me what that means. Well, so gossip, I think it, there's all these articles that are like, gossip is great because it actually gets things out in the open. And I think that's silly because if I'm actually engaging in a way that is self-aware and conscious, then I'm going to be candid with you instead. And I think the real cost of gossip, so how do I define gossip? Gossip just means I am saying something about you that I would not say to you. And I, you know, as soon as I engage in that, especially when there's that undertone of um, comparison or um, sort of the, the negativity bias that shows up in there. But if I'm talking about you instead of to you about something, there's one, the cost in our relationship where as soon as, and most people usually find out, as soon as they find out that they're gossiping, being gossiped about, or as soon as I'm engaging in gossip, then there's distance in our relationship and it makes it even harder to talk more directly about the subject. Right. There's a secondary cost though, which is if I'm gossiping with you and we're talking about someone else. As soon as I leave that conversation, I think to myself, well, that's not a safe person because if we're talking about that other person, probably they're talking about me as soon as I'm not there. So it's just this undermining of trust and distance creating in all kinds of relationships that make it so much more challenging to speak directly in a way that we can actually learn and see the other person's perspective and empathize and understand, grow, and then create things that are awesome. You know, and there's two that these commitments, they really kind of go together. One is speaking candidly and the next is eliminating gossip. And I want to share a little bit about how that you can see that play into professional situations because gossip is something when you say that people think about high school and like, oh, she likes, you know, so-and-so or look at her skirt, you know, but yeah. it like actually stays with you. As no. Yeah, no, this is completely the stuff that happens in organizations. This is, you know, somebody says, Hey, so we were both in that meeting. Did you agree with what Jessica said in there? Oh my gosh, I didn't agree either. I thought she was totally off base. It doesn't even have to be about the person's character. It's just, if I'm not saying in the room, hey, Jessica, I have a different perspective. Let's talk about that. And instead I take it offline and go around, especially if it's then, you know, the only reason that her idea is going to get promoted is because she's BFFs with the, you know, person who's going to make that call. And, and so I this is such a great example. And I'm going to like actually connect this back to the Enneagram. So the, the speaking candidly is the opposite of gossip. So the right thing yes. to do would be to have an environment where people felt comfortable sharing an opinion in a constructive way where they feel like that opinion would be welcome in the meeting or making sure that you have a culture of candor where you can have candor and kindness. You know, it's not about being an asshole down, but it is about, giving feedback directly to the person versus, and we don't do that, not because we want to be evil and we're mean, but because we're afraid to hurt people's feelings. We're afraid of how they're going to react to it. And, and that really is, it, that is about personal growth and, and taking on leadership, right? Because that, if you're going to give people direct feedback, so learning how to do that and do that well, and actually taking responsibility for the environment 
Is, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that you've combined all of it. I think that you've combined four of these commitments so beautifully because really what you're saying is if my commitment is to be candid and my commitment is also right to not gossip, then it's created or facilitated when the whole group is committed to curiosity because the person on the other side of my feedback is committed to really listening and learning from whatever it is that I'm revealing. And it's also, it's a commitment by everyone to hundred percent responsibility where I'm saying, I'm not sure that I'm right. So I'm also engaging with curiosity. I'm saying I am taking responsibility to voice my opinion, my perspective, to be candid. You're taking responsibility to listen and engage, which again, just because I said it doesn't mean that I'm right about it. But if we have all of these together it unlocks so much powerful collaboration, learning, personal development that just isn't possible if I'm operating in a vacuum where I don't get any feedback or if I do get feedback, if I reject it out of hand. So that, that is so important. And I really believe you're a leader. You don't talk about people. You talk to people. Totally. But then I also want to say, you know, where I've made mistakes in the past and where I've realized where I needed to change to allow for that. So as an eight, good news, you're super candid. Yes. <laughs> bad news you're super candid right you don't like directness doesn't bother you you really like it you need it so if you've got like a nine who's saying yes when they mean no you don't understand that because you would never do that so you're kind of like what you know and it's, it's not even it's so foreign to you as something that could happen you're not even aware that it's happening yes and so what I love about the commitment to candor is that it's not only I commit to reveal myself with candor, but also I commit to be a person to whom others reveal themselves with candor. Yes. Yes. So that for me is where that like the easy for me to be candid, incredibly difficult for me to create an environment without constant effort and, and care where other people can be candid. And what I love about you and your commitment to self-awareness, Jessica, is that I, I watch you with intentionality calibrate, hey, listen, my eightness can sound like I'm you know, committed to this or that I'm not open for feedback. And I just, I want you to know on the other side as I'm saying this, that this is an invitation for you to engage with me. Don't let my tone or my posture intimidate you out of something because what I most want is you to show up. That is, thank you, because again, I feel like I've learned this and being part of the coaching that you've provided and your organization provided, and I need to do that. What I've realized is I need to do that not once. I need to do that all the time, like every meeting, after the meeting, following up from the meeting, because otherwise I lose the value of other people's strength and opinions. So that is kind of an example of where understanding your personality helps you become more effective because you recognize how much that is it, how important that is. So that, that is like a perfect example. Okay. Tell me about one of these other commitments that I think sounds great, which is living a life of play and rest. Yeah. So this commitment I think is so important, especially in today's day and age where you really could go 24 seven being plugged in, making sure that you're posting, making sure you're caught up in the news, there's information overload. You, I don't know about you, but certainly my inbox and my text messages, like someone I could always be working. And yet for me to be present, for me to be my best, 
it requires that pause and play, engaging in something just for the delight of it. And rest where I take that vacation, not where I'm online the whole time, but or I take that nap or I take my full eight hours of sleep. What we see on the other side is the rejuvenation and the creativity is so powerful. And it's not, hey, all of this is just in service of you being more productive. It's that my ability to be present in and enjoy my life also is accentuated. Yeah, that, that's, that's really amazing. I, I think some of the things that I've really learned around this is can everything not be so serious and hard? <laughs> right. Yes. Well, if we can laugh about things, we can shift them. And, and the thing about that too is if in your life you're dedicated to your family, to your community, to your work, you, you, you feel like if you're passionate and you care, then you've got to take all these things so seriously. And actually lightening up isn't about loving less or caring less or being less committed. It's actually about being more effective. <laughs> so, so that's something that is a real you know, eye-opener. And perspective, right? That they go together. Totally. Well, I, I love that. So I just want to highlight a few of the key takeaways that I've learned from you from this interview and from before, which I want people to go dig into. And then I'm going to ask you to give them a take action challenge because we can know about it, but if we don't act on it, there is no point. So being self-made is about recognizing free will. So one, when you go take this personality test, which I hope you do, the Enneagram, promise me that you won't feel condemned by it and that you will feel like free choice and openness, right? Your Enneagram is not a sentence, right? No, no, no. Yes. Free choice and openness and that your Enneagram type facilitates you seeing yourself more clearly so you can spend more time being the best of who you are. That's right. And then next, it does take um, awareness and it's not a one and done thing. It's not like you take the quiz, you learn about yourself and then you change and you're like a great person. Like how does that <laughs> Like check the box. The ongoing work, right? And there's resources and commitments of ongoing work. Absolutely. That this is, it's a process. It's an evolution that exactly as you're saying, this isn't something where you do it once and you're done and you check the box and you're enlightened, but rather it's a practice that you do every day or that I do every day. I think that is so important because you can get so frustrated with yourself like, why am I still repeating these same patterns? Like, why do I still suck at this, this, and this? And the reality is development and mindset is like brushing your teeth. Like it, it has an expiry date of 12 hours. Like if you don't yes. keep doing it, it goes away. So you have to commit to this as an ongoing set of consciousness. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So with that, um, I want you to give our listeners a challenge for how they can, if they're curious about learning more about themselves so that they can become more effective, what can they go do in the next 24 hours? Action challenge number one is go take the Enneagram Institute test. So go online, enneagraminstitute.com, take the one that's called the Ready, R-H-E-T-I, um, I think that stands for Riso Hudson Enneagram Test. Um, so take the Ready and engage, read the report, get curious. If you want to learn more, you can certainly go to courses.kayleeklent.com, but find out your personality type as action step number one. For extra credit, find one thing to be curious about today, something that you were defensive about before or closed about before, and one thing to get curious about instead. Well, I love that. Thank you so much for your time and being on here. I can't wait to share 
we want to have you back when you have, and when you and your husband are back on with the marriage book, I'm going to have you back and talk about that. I would love it. I can't wait. Well, thank you. And so if you are listening and you have learned something, please share because being aware is a gift to give someone else. So hashtag self-made podcast, uh, give a review wherever you listen to your podcast because we so appreciate you sharing the word of mouth and getting this out there for others. Because again, it is so important that people who are not regularly engaged in self-development have the resources and access to do that to continue their professional growth, even if it's outside of a traditional corporate work environment. So remember my friends, you are self-made. It's what you do that makes the difference. Until next time, bye everybody.